I got one thing to tell you about, and that is on August 22nd. It's Saturday, 8.15 in the morning. We're doing our next men's breakfast. Only They only last about an hour, so don't feel like we're taking up your entire Saturday. 8.15, about 9, 9.15, 9.30. Right outside there, go up the side door, up into the youth room. We're going to have bacon and some other shenanigans. Doesn't really matter because we got bacon. And, and this is the coolest thing why we do it in the youth room, because... After you, when you do it in the youth room, you don't got to clean up when you're done because they're like animals. They walk in there, and they just kind of they take care of it. No, no, bummer. Anyway, so eight fifteen, August twenty second. If you're a dude, doesn't matter if you're like one hundred and fifty or you're five. Okay, you, you're all welcome to come. Uh, if oh, there are no sermon notes. Oh, what I got one. Oh, I got one up here. So there are sermon notes on most of the communion tables throughout the room. If you don't have one, you can grab one. Uh, you get to color them. There's crayons on all the communion tables as well. So again, if I get really boring and you want to fall asleep, you don't. You color. You'll be fine. You'll be okay. Uh, it, in, inside of this, uh, you'll get some notes about what we're talking about as well as some questions to go a little bit deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. The app is called Uversion. Click on Live in Uversion. We'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, questions, verses, and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Daniel chapter 6, verse 16. It says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who understand you as the one who holds control and destiny all in your hands. And that every time that we take and place something in front of you or before you in our lives, our lives tend to fall apart. But every time we take and have you first above all things, our lives begin to make more and more and more sense. So teach us today to place everything behind you. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So we are going through this summer series called Coloring Book All-Stars. They're all about your favorite characters or kids' favorite characters in the Bible coloring book. If you ever had one as a kid, we're looking at their backstories some different things about that took place in their lives. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in a church like me, these are some of the stories you still heard about. Like if you went to the fair, there's usually like a strong man there and his name was like Samson because it's like Bible stuff. You just can't get away from it. And so last week we looked at some characters called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This week we're going to look at their buddy. His name is Daniel and his lion den experience. So, so here's your pictures to compare against if you're going to color. All right. This is Mackenzie, five. Lines mean nothing to Mackenzie. Okay. It's like, I'm going to color right outside. Woo! What color I got now? I got that. Okay. This is Jaden, Jaden, seven. What a difference in two years, huh? Huh? All the lions are like yellow and orange. Daniel's sporting his orange toga. He must be really old because his beard's all gray and white and everything. See, so you get to color and see how, how yours match up. Now, if you want to, you can open to Daniel chapter 6 or Daniel chapter 1. We are going to do a short little intro, shorter than last week. I'm going to give you a lot of information up front, and I'm sorry if it just kind of goes, whoop 
or you lose space, but we got to get to where we're at so you understand the history of where we're at, how Daniel got to be where he was. Uh, Daniel got to be where he was because a king named Nebuchadnezzar, essentially from the area of Iraq, attacked and hauled God's people off into slavery, as well as items from God's temple. Uh, this, this is a thing known as the Babylonian captivity, when all of Israel is finally overtaken by countries around them. The captivity is how the book of Daniel starts, but as we said last Last week, you got to look at verse 1 and 2 of Daniel chapter 1 because it tells you how it came to be. It says that God gave them into the Babylonians' hands. God is the one who put them there. So this becomes about an issue of control, who was ultimately in control. Daniel is all about those issues. These people, the Israelites, were in the hands of the Babylonians because God wanted them there. And it doesn't stop there. you got Nebuchadnezzar, he goes to one of his officials and he says, I want you to take the best of all these people that we have just captured, the best young men, the smartest, the quickest, the brightest. I want you to put them in a training program for three years to make them into Babylonians. So not only are they stealing Israel's past and their heritage and their identity, he's also trying to steal their future away as well. And that is where you meet Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now how do we know this is about identity? Because all their names just change from names referencing who God, the God of Israel was, to names that reflect Babylonian gods. Daniel, his name meant God is my judge. He becomes Belteshazzar, which is O Lady, which is Y of the god Bel, protect the king. So Daniel's name becomes a prayer to a pagan god. Now, some really interesting things as well. Archaeologically speaking, they have now found references to Daniel and to Abednego in extra-biblical sources in archaeology, which is really kind of interesting. Now, three years passed in this training program. Graduation day occurs, and these four guys get presented to Nebuchadnezzar. And not only were they the best of Israel, they became the best in Babylon. Chapter 1, verse 20, it says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So you fast forward to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel saves all of the wise men of Babylon because he was able to tell the king what the king's dream was and then interpret that dream. And because of that, Daniel gets promoted as well as his buddies. In Daniel chapter 4, the same thing happens again. He gets promoted because he tells the king his dream and tells the king what the dream means. Now, because he's promoted, it makes all the other wise men jealous because these are Hebrews. Israelites are beneath them. They're beneath them. And and all of a sudden, they have positions of authority and power over them. Now, the biggest thing in the narrative about the Babylonians that you see is that they believe the gods don't dwell among mankind. They don't reveal themselves to mankind. Daniel chapter 2, verse 11, the wise men say the, king that, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. They say God doesn't reveal himself to mankind. They're kind of like deists. God set the world on its course. He watches and laughs at us and makes fun of us, but he doesn't really interact or deal with us. And what's amazing is later what you see is you will have wise men come from the area of Iraq and Iran at the birth of Jesus to worship him. They find him in his home at about two years old and they worship him as God in the flesh. So you see that something about the Israelites being in captivity rubbed off on the Babylonians. In Daniel chapter 4, uh, you get some humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes to the place where he realizes God is God and he is not. 
and it shows that Daniel used King Nebuchadnezzar's confession of God to affirm that the repentant can know God's grace no matter how bad their pasts have been, that everything can be redeemed. You get to Daniel chapter 5. See, we're just blazing through this. You have Nebuchadnezzar's son. His name is Belshazzar. He becomes king. In chapter 5, verse 4, he's having a party, and the text says, they drink wine and praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Oh, what does that sound like? It sounds like the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter 2, where Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you saw a statue in your dream. There was a head of gold, and the second part was silver, and the third part was bronze, and the fourth part was iron. The feet were made from iron and clay. A stone is cut out. It knocks this statue over, and Daniel says, you're the head of gold. You have power. You're in control. You think you're king of the world, but it's all going to get knocked down. Again, going back to issues of who is in control. So you have Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, now worshiping all of these different things that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, probably in an effort to get them not to dethrone him so he can actually stay in power. And you see in chapter 5 that God uses Belshazzar's sacrilege to warn that rebellious, they will reap God's justice no matter how secure they think they are. This is, again, about God being in control. And so people ask, well, where's the grace in that warning? I think the answer is, if God didn't love, he would not warn. So while this party and this revelry is going on, God writes on a wall about the downfall of Belshazzar. And and Daniel comes in, he interprets this, and that very night the Chaldeans are conquered by these people called the Medes and a guy named Darius. That is where chapter 6 of Daniel starts. What you'll see is Daniel, he will bless Whatever king is there, because he believes God has first blessed him, so he blesses who is ever in power. Darius, at the beginning of chapter 6, he gets tired of all the reports because his kingdom is getting way too big. So he appoints 120 satraps, like governors, to oversee his area. And he takes three people and places those above those 120. So now he only gets three direct reports. Nice, right? You're making your workflow work a little smarter and better. And eventually, Daniel distinguishes himself so well that he becomes number one over those three. So now Darius only gets one report, and it's from Daniel. Daniel's over the other two. The other two don't like it, nor do the 120 satraps like that. So they try and get some dirt on Daniel. There's your background. You following? Okay, you're like, I'm back in now. Okay, I'm back in. Daniel chapter 6. Verse 4, then the high officials and satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint uh, or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So they're looking for dirt, but Daniel does his job so well, there is none. He doesn't send personal emails while he's at work. He doesn't play Candy Crush. He doesn't post stupid things on Facebook while he's at work. He doesn't talk about his boss behind his back. How about that question for you? If they had to seek some dirt on you, what would they find? Don't answer that. I know you're like, just move on. We're okay. Okay, nothing to see here. So they go to find dirt. They can't find any dirt on Daniel. So they plot and create an issue where there was none before. They know that Daniel is a Jew. They know that Daniel gets down on his knees and prays to God every day. So that's where they're going to get him. Daniel 6, verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, and that's a lie right there because Daniel wasn't part of that, so they're lying to the king. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. What they say is, we were talking and we think it's a good idea for 30 days that nobody prays to anybody but you. And Darius says, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. 
So he makes a law, and that's a law that he can't even change. Chapter 6, verse 10, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel doesn't freak out. Look at the government's doing. They're trying to oppress him. He doesn't freak out. He still goes in. He prays to God. He gives thanks because he knows that God is in control. Daniel puts God first in all things. Verse 11, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Oh, who knew Daniel would still be doing that? They all did. They all did. They go to the king and say, King, we're really sad. We got some news to report to you, and it really, really breaks our heart because we know how much you love Daniel, and, and, and we love him too, but he is violating your edict, and you know it is irrevocable, so you've got to throw him to the lions. Chapter 6, verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So the king says, Curses, why do I have so much power that I can't change the things that I said? Verse 16, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. What you see is that the king has no power. The king is impotent. The king who believes that nobody should pray to anybody but him for 30 days cannot save. And he looks at Daniel, and he says, I hope your God, whom you pray to, can save you. This is irony, and it's funny, and if you were a Hebrew, you'd be laughing right now as you read the text. Anyway, so i got a lot to read here, so just go with me. Verse 17, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions, that means harem were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no Harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. Seems excessive. It's like, what? I told my husband he was an idiot. No! Right? (laughs) This is the conversation you have all the time. I know it. Okay. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King... <laughs> Read these stories to your kids before they go to bed. <laughs> then Darius... Little boys will love it. Then Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble before the God of Daniel. Not, not his God, okay? God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. End scene. Daniel the lion's den. That's the story. It it evokes kind of epicness and, and things like that. If you look at pictorial renderings of this story. There's some history and a common theme that goes throughout it. So this is Rembrandt. 
Okay, this is his picture of Daniel in the lion's den. If you have a copy of this, I know it just looks like a little kid made some pencil drawings, but you would be rich if you have one of these right here. This next one is Rubens from the 1600s. This is his picture of it. Uh, this is Guarana from the 1700s. This is his picture. And this is Riviere. He's probably my favorite one that I like of this. And so what do you see? They have lions. They have Daniel. They have lions keeping a safe distance. Daniel is usually calm, you know, at ease, focused on God. And now why do I think this is, this is interesting, right? Well, because all the artwork that depicts this story in all these places all tell us something the story never talks about. All of our artwork, even if you look on the cover of our coloring book, it all tells you a thing that the story never talks about. In Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what you see is into the fiery furnace. You see these guys walking around and what's going on. In this story of Daniel, you only have the vantage point of the king, and that's it. The king puts him in. The king goes to bed. The king wakes up. You have no clue what's going on in the den. The one part of the story that everyone depicts is the part of the story that is not depicted. Crazy, right? All we know is Daniel goes in, the door shuts, Daniel comes out in the morning. Ta-da! I mean, that, that, that's all we know. We're not ushered in like other stories. Why do we only see the things that we see? I think it's because the author wants us to walk through and work through certain issues about the nature of life and our relationship with God. Trust, control, idolatry. I think that is what we're supposed to work through. We don't see the lion's den. And this is kind of, you know, on a, on a really extrapolated thing out, we don't even see what's going on deep in people's lives around us. Maybe someone from your GC, like, disappears, or someone from church services disappear, and you don't see them for months or, or maybe years, and you see them at the grocery store, or they show up for church at some point, and you're like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while, and they tell you this horrendous thing that happened, and we just never knew. See, in one sense, Daniel's lion's den could be representative of our lives. You ask questions, you know, Daniel was spared in the midst of all this. The people that got thrown in after him, before they apparently hit the bottom of the, of the den, their bones get broken into pieces. Why did Daniel survive? Well, the text tells you part of it is that he followed God even when everyone and every law said not to. His commitment and love for God took precedence over everything else. But you have to understand, for Daniel, his safety was not secured. He didn't know he was going to come out on the other side of it unscathed. The whole story is almost a retelling of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. That's why we looked at it last week. You know, it's a whole kind of retelling of that without the light in the middle. You, you only get the darkness. And it's like we said last week about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. The threat to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego was not the fiery furnace. The threat to them was bowing down and worshiping this golden image. It was the idol. The threat to Daniel, it is not the lion's den. The officials thought it was the lion's den, but the threat to Daniel was who was in control, who was the idol, who is worthy of allegiance, who is worthy of prayers. And no matter what happens, the lions couldn't destroy Daniel, the fiery furnace couldn't destroy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but praying and trusting anything other than Jesus could destroy them. That's what it's telling you. And do you realize that in the scriptures, idolatry is God's main issue for his people? Idolatry. People have said that the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, it's idolatry. You know, in the Ten Commandments, uh, number one, Exodus 20, verse 3, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And it's really interesting because we believe, and the Jews believed, in monotheism. Uh, Thomas Cahill said that monotheism is the great gift the Jews gave to the world. If God knows there is no other gods, why does he not just say, you shall have no other gods and leave it there? Instead, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. That means in advance of or above. You shall have no other gods before me. It seems to imply that God thinks or knows that we have other gods. 
And to be clear, God is not saying, hey, there's a bunch of gods out there, and please, 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 put me first. Uh, that's really important to me. God's not saying there's other gods. What he's saying is we make everything into a god. It's why it's the first commandment. It's about idolatry. Martin Luther said there's a reason the first of the Ten Commandments is about idolatry. He says you never break commandment two to ten without first breaking number one. I mean, I, I, I think that we can't even understand moral failings or psychological problems with fir, un, without first understanding idolatry. It's why I think psychology today is going to fail because we must understand idolatry first. Human beings, we have this ability to fall in love with things in our lives all the time. I mean, from little kids, this is toys to the things we see on TV. Then we get older and it's just more expensive things that we saw on TV. And as you're an adult, it's other people and places and jobs and things. I'll give you an example of this. Okay, when I was seven years old, we had a class discussion in GASP public school about the soul. You know, what it was, who has them, what they meant. And honestly, at seven years old, I had no idea what it meant. I wasn't really raised in a religious home at all. But I got out of school, and my stepdad, Jack, picked me up that day. It was a rare occurrence, so I totally remember it. And just a brief history on my, on my stepdad, Jack, not a very religious guy at all, unless you consider, like, bowling or alcohol. Then he was very religious about those things. But he didn't know how to handle kids that well. So I get into his car that day after school, seven years old, and I go, Jack, what's a soul? The cigarette nearly fell out of his mouth, set the car on fire. He's like, what? And I go, a soul. What's a soul? He looks at me like I'm from another planet. And the way Jack was raised, it's probably true. I was like from, from another planet. Jack's a trooper. I think the wheels are spinning in his brain. So he comes back. He says, a soul is very important. Now, today I'm like, he didn't really answer the question. That's like a dodge, right? He's not answering the question. So I go, do I have one? He goes, of course, we all have one. Jack was, was raised in, in, in the Catholic Church, so he has you know, this kind of little bit of theology behind him a little bit. So he tells me this, and so I found out I just possess something very important. I've got a soul. I think Jack is deeply impressed with his theological understanding. As I'm staring at him, like, give me more. So I think Jack's like, okay, I better give this kid, kid some more. So what he says is, the soul is very valuable, and that's why the devil wants it. I'm like, the devil? Holy crap, how do I get to the devil, right? <laughs> I had something the devil wanted, you know, so, so it's crazy. So he goes on, he says, yep, it's so valuable, the devil will give you anything in the world for it. And I'm like, anything? He says, anything. So then he asks like the million dollar question. He says, he says, so what do you want more than anything else in the world right now? And as a seven year old, I know I should have said world peace, right? I want 20 more wishes. That's what I, I, I said, I want a Max machine. I you have no idea what it is. Okay, a Max machine is this remote control car. It represents the A-team band, kind of look like the A-team band and stuff. And I can just picture myself driving this thing around our house as a seven-year-old kid going, I pity the fool! I pity the fool! Like my, I pity the fool, in my best Mr. T. I know, I'm a skinny little white one. I can't do a Mr. T, but that's the best I had. So Jack says to me, okay, you get a Max machine and the devil gets your soul. I think somebody watched too many movies when they explained theology. But anyway, anyway. And I go, okay. What do I care? It's just a soul. I mean, it just doesn't mean anything, right? It's a stinking Max machine, people. I pity the fool, okay? So, so Jack says, well, that means you have to go to hell when you die. And I'm like, how did we go from Max machines to hell? Okay? That is like, that is like a huge step. And so I said, so I go, well, can I play with the Max machine in hell? He says, no, in hell you just get burned with fire forever. How do we explain these things to kids like this? Come on, get some people. 
And, and I'm still debating if whether an eternity of, of hellfire and damnation is worth the max machine, right? So, so four months later, it's Christmas time. What do you think Jack gives me for Christmas? <laughs> a max machine. And I spend the next six years of my life thinking I sold my soul for this thing because it wasn't very cool. It was not very cool at all. Now, I'm going somewhere. I'm going somewhere with this, okay? Now, the Max Machine is something that I turned into a God in my life, that thing I thought I needed. Now, think about this as you get older, okay? You have a career path. Oh, I've got to have that career path, or I've got to have that job, or someone just needs to hear me sing, and then they would give me a recording contract because I'm so wonderful, or my bank account has to be this, or my body has to look this way, or I've got to have that relationship, or get rid of the relationship I have, or get a better one, or just have one whatsoever. We are so discontent with what God has given us, we go in search of anything and everything and make it a God, and we worship it and give our allegiance to it, and in the process, we destroy ourselves. That is what God is saying. See, we make gods all the time. We call them movie stars, okay? And we see them, we're oh, movie star, oh, bow down, look at the movie star. We pay money to them, we pay $20 for a ticket, and we, and we give our time and our effort and our energy. It's, it's worship. It's worship. This is what God is confronting in Daniel. In Daniel, just like the Ten Commandments, over and over. A problem we have, though, is that we place on God human traits, our own human traits. We hear so much that man is made in God's image that we then try to make God in our own image. And when we hear these words, have no other gods before me, it leads people to say things like, well, God must have unmet needs of praise and recognition, and we've got to fulfill those. No, the truth is that God does not need us first for God's sake. He has no deficiency in him his person that we have to make up for. He didn't create us because he was lonely or because God needed us. God wants to be first for our sake. There is not a single thing we could give God that he does not already have. He does not depend upon us. Why does God need to be first? Because we need him to be first. God has no birth date. God has no end date. He made everything we know and everything we don't know. He has a name and he's told it to people throughout the ages and we still can't even pronounce it right. He made creation and by how it was created, it is passing and needs his strength and his power to sustain it. It has a beginning and an end. And creation by its nature, it is beautiful. It is wonderful. It is mind-blowing. And as long as we understand that God created it, we're going to be okay. But as soon as we start to worship it, Everything goes downhill because it will hurt you because created things are not good gods. When the created worships another created thing is when all the pain starts. When we bow down to Darius, when we bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, when people say things like this in their relationships, oh, you complete me. You know how hard it is for somebody to complete you? Guys say this about girls all the time. I hear this, oh, she's my world. You know how hard it is for someone to be your world? That's insane. You have just started to worship them and put godlike qualities in somebody else, and they're going to fail you because we are not good gods. We destroy ourselves and our relationships. The only way the lions don't devour God's people is for God to be first. That is what Daniel is saying. If everything in your life fell apart, if you lost everything, your kids, your family, your everything, would Jesus still be enough? That's the question that it's asking. And if the lions attacked, I will tell you, Daniel's soul would not have been devoured. 
he would have been okay, even if his body was destroyed. The only way his soul would have been devoured is if he let idolatry reign instead of Jesus. And this is the problem with idols. When we see them, and we're like, that's an idol in my life. I really got to start to get rid of that. Then we start to try and get rid of that, and that idol just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. Usually it just kind of sits between our ears. We make it bigger than it really is. But we start focusing on it so much that it just gets easier to leave it where it is than to put Jesus first in front of it. And so we just kind of live our lives with, with you know, Jesus kind of tacked on the end of it, but all of our idols still placed in front of him. And it's hard to sort this out at times, I know, because many times God is invisible, and the created realm is so visible, and it's right in front of you, and we get so distracted so easily. We are experts at getting everything backwards. It is why we create images, even in some churches, an image of a cross, and people begin to worship that image rather than Jesus. Now, this is not my analogy. I stole it, but I heard this. I don't remember who it was who said this, but I wrote it down, and I thought it was great. Uh, his four-year-old daughter was having some problems learning her numbers, so he's trying to explain it to her. So, so he writes this down. He says, okay, so, so what number is this? And she says, well, that's 10. And so he says, okay, well, what number is this? And she says, that's 10. He says, why? She goes, there's a 1 and a 0. It's a 10. So good logic, right? She's doing okay. So he goes, okay, so, so what's this? And he writes this down. She goes, that's 100. She, he goes, well, what's this? He goes, well, that's 100. You know, same, same logic. So he explains to her. He says, it's like this. He goes, any zero you put before the one doesn't change the one's value. But if you put them after the one, it goes up and up and up. This is idolatry. This is idolatry. Everything we put before God is just zeros. He is the one. He has always been the one. There is nobody who is the one except for him. And if you come and you put your job, or you put your marriage, or you put your love life, or you put your family, or you put your health, or you put your past, your future, your car, your clothes, it's all zeros. It's all zeros. Our lives are just every new thing that you get is a zero. That's all that it is. But there's only one one. And that is Jesus, the creator. Okay? Anything you put before Jesus becomes valueless. But everything you place after Jesus, we become rich beyond our wildest imaginations. See, there's a reason Daniel's in the scriptures. The lions are all zeros. The, the lions can only hurt when they're placed in front of Jesus. But Daniel consistently put God first. He doesn't stop praying no matter what was going to be done to him physically. Because God was always first. The lions didn't go away. The lions were still there. The lions are scary as ever. I and mean, if you put me in a lion's den, I'd be like, Jesus, I trust you. I think I'm going to die right now. And I'd be peeing in my pants. Maybe the smell will keep him away. I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> But Jesus even says in John 16, 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The troubles are there, but he has overcome them. The one is always the one. God has always been who he always has been. God doesn't change because you deny he exists, because you ignore him, or because you worship him. God simply always is. But what is in he is in the right spot in our lives and our hearts when nothing comes before him. That is when everything changes. That is when everything changes. And the amazing thing is whenever we take whatever is before God and place it after him, it becomes of infinite more value. Every time it goes after him, your job, your relationships, your hope, your future. The problem is we're always trying to set everything in front of Jesus. And we tack him on the end. That's not how it works. Jesus is first. And this is the beauty of the gospel. 
Jesus just didn't defeat the lions for Daniel. He defeated our sin, our death, our idols at the cross. Jesus is always first. We say things like this in churches all the time. We say, surrender your life to Jesus. Right? Why? Because Jesus is always first. I mean, you're told in a time every knee will bow, every tongue confess. May as well do it now. <laughs> you know, he is first. He is first. And when our lives are surrendered where he is first and everything comes after, our lives make so much more sense. And it's not even about us. It's about him. It's about what he has done. It's about what he continues to do. And yet so often, so often, we stick him here. We put everything else we're worried about in front of him. And all of a sudden, Jesus gets buried under all of these things. And we're like, why doesn't Jesus work? Because it's not about Jesus working. It's about Jesus being first. And when he is first, everything makes more sense because it comes after. And the beauty of the gospel is that as many times as we do this, as many times we do stupid things trying to place him in front of Jesus, he still rescues, he still redeems, he still saves, he still calls us home, he still points out where our idols are and where he needs to be first. He never stops. He chases us down. It's beautiful. This is redemption. This is why we talk about communion every single week. Because you go and you break that cracker. It's like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It's like his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? Because we're stuck in the lion's den. And Jesus defeats our lions. He defeats our idols. He defeats everything. Why? Because he is first and he is number one. And he is always in that position no matter what. Stop trying to move him because he is immovable. And simply put everything else in your life behind him. And only then is it going to make sense. The band's going to come up. As they do, we invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you're in a place today where you keep placing all these things in front of Jesus and trying to move him to a different spot, stop. Stop. And simply take all of those things and place them after him so your life begins to make more sense. Because true worship is going to be found and true worship we're going to live in when we get to the place where Jesus is actually first. I I don't... We are a people who so often want to place everything in front of him. And so often we don't want to surrender anything to him. But our lives are never going to be lived in the grace and the mercy that they need to be lived in until we get that understanding correct. That Jesus is first in all things. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter if you believe it. It's still true. Because he is first. He is God. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And instead of fighting him with all of your idols every day, toss them behind him so they actually begin to have value and cease being worthless. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the back because uh, God gave so much to us. So we give back to so be part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, there's some food in the back. I saw Joy run through her earlier with some cookies that she made, homemade. Don't fight over them. They're not idols. Okay? Close, but not idols. Grab, grab a cookie, meet some other people, and then maybe take some of the sermon notes and meet some other people and begin to walk through the questions in those sermon notes. Find somebody that can ask you the hard questions. What have you placed as an idol? What in your life sits before Jesus sits? And allow people to speak hard words into your life so that we actually begin to get these things in the right way. Because one of the reasons God put us in each other's lives is so we can point this out to each other. And so we can see where it's starting to happen because idols creep in 
so quietly and slowly, and they begin to overtake our lives. So we trust one another as we trust Jesus. Jesus above everybody else, obviously, but trust him. So we would encourage you to grab something to eat, meet some other people, and start to begin to walk through some of those things. Our God is good. Our God is good. And he doesn't leave us in the misery of our man-made idols. He sets us free so we can be free indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who has rescued and redeemed a people who, quite frankly, act like we don't want to be rescued and redeemed. We keep giving our hearts and our affections to everything else. And I ask today that you would begin to point that out to us. All the things that we have placed as more important than you in our lives, even the things that we would say to everybody else, oh, that's not more important. Yet in reality, it is. Have us understand the insidious nature of idols, but have us also understand the great redeeming hope of your grace. That you long to set us free. Because when we are free, we worship you in grace and truth and life and hope. And everything makes sense. Because it is how it is meant to be. You first. As you always are and always have been first. Teach us to live in the recognition of the fact of your goodness. Teach us to live as a people who honor you above all things. We thank you for rescuing us even when we did not deserve it. But you did anyway. Thank you for defeating our lions. Teach us to live in that hope that you have provided. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.